poet, playwright, philosopher, science theorist, and science fiction author. These are just a few of the occupations held by the 17th century noblewoman, Lady Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle. We'll be talking about her life and her works today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, On today's episode of the podcast, I want to talk about one of the most fascinating women in early modern Europe, or, well, at least I think so. Our story starts in England in 1623, the year that Margaret Lucas was born into a wealthy Essex family, the youngest of eight children. Her father, Thomas Lucas, died when she was two, so Margaret was raised by her mother, Elizabeth, and educated by a series of private tutors whom, according to her biography, were more for show than for substance. She writes, quote, As for tutors, although we had for all sorts of virtues as singing, dancing, playing on music, reading, writing, working, and the like, yet we were not kept strictly thereto. They were rather for formality than benefit, for my mother cared not so much for our dancing and fiddling, singing and pratting of several languages, as that we should be bred virtuously, modestly, civilly, honorably, and on honest principles. The England into which Margaret was born was one of change, not the least of which was dynastic change. In 1603, two decades before Margaret was born, Elizabeth I had died, ending the century of Tudor rule, and the crown passed to her cousin, James VI of Scotland, now James I of England. After his death in 1625, so around the same time that Margaret's father died, uh, he was succeeded by his son, Charles I. Now, both James and Charles had pretensions to be what we would call uh, absolutist monarchs, and subsequently they both struggled to consolidate their power in England, particularly against the independent institution of Parliament, which was increasingly being dominated by Puritans who did not care for the Stuarts at all. All of this comes to a head in 1642, when Parliament and the Crown went to war with one another and the English Civil War began. The Lucas family was decidedly royalist in its politics, and Margaret's mother moved to Oxford. Two of Margaret's brothers would, in fact, serve in the royalist or cavalier army. While at Oxford, Margaret entered into the private service of Charles I's wife, Queen Henrietta Maria, as one of her maids of honor. Two years later, in 1644, Henrietta Maria fled England for the safety of Paris, and Margaret went along with her. It was during this exile that she met William Cavendish, Marquis of Newcastle. The Cavendishes were a very old, very prominent family in England, and William was no exception to the family rule. He was fabulously wealthy, and even loaned money to the crown itself. When the English Civil War broke out, he obviously sided with the monarchy, and was even the military commander of one of Margaret's brothers, which is actually how he first heard about her. Following a particularly disastrous military encounter in Yorkshire at Marston Moor, William left England, going first to Germany and then to Paris. At Paris, he became personally acquainted with Margaret Lucas, who was over 30 years his junior. She would have been about 21 or 22 at the time, and he was about uh, 52 or 53. By their own account, the couple adored one another and were soon exchanging angsty letters and poetry. They eventually married, despite the fact that Henrietta Maria seemed to not approve of the match, and they moved then to Antwerp in the Netherlands, where they would remain for over a decade until Charles I's son, Charles II, was restored to the throne in 1660. 
During their period of exile, William and Margaret lived on a series of loans and credit that put them in a state of continual financial precariousness. The reason for this was that, following Parliament's execution of Charles I in 1649, William's estates had been seized in his absence, and thus he couldn't derive any income from them. So great was their indebtedness that Margaret wrote, Though I was not afraid of starving or begging, yet my chief fear was that my lord for his debts would suffer imprisonment. For a brief moment, when William's estates were being sold, Margaret returned to England to try and benefit from their sale, but to no avail. Despite the Stuart restoration and the Cavendishes returned to England in 1660, they continued to deal with financial insecurity. This was in part because, instead of repaying William for his personal costs in fighting in the English Civil War, Charles II elevated William's title from that of Marquess to the newly created Duchy of Newcastle. Over time, William was able to gain back many of his lost properties, but some could not be reclaimed, and others had to be sold off to pay his substantial debts. In the biography she eventually wrote of her husband, Margaret estimates that William's overall losses due to his support of the crown totaled the astronomical sum of £941,000. Now, it is hard to translate that into modern currency, but uh, using some handy-dandy online historical currency calculators, uh, it's somewhere between $181 million and $5 billion in today's money. Uh, This is depending on your method of calculation. Still, either way, absolutely huge amount of money. In terms of personality, getting at the real Margaret Cavendish, in inverted commas, uh, is a little difficult. Uh, Much of what we know about her comes from her own writing. In her autobiography, A True Relation of My Birth, Breeding, and Life, which she wrote at the age of 33 in 1656, four years before the Stuart Restoration, Cavendish casts herself as a naturally shy person, but still having a desire for fame and adulation, one which is far more borne out by her public life. She writes, But I fear my ambition inclines to vainglory, for I am very ambitious. Yet, tis neither for beauty, wit, titles, wealth, or power, but as they are steps to raise me to fame's tower, which is to live by remembrance in after ages. Likewise, I am that the vulgar calls proud, not out of self-conceit, or to slight or condemn any, but scorning to do a base or mean act, and disdaining rude or unworthy persons. Insomuch that, if I could find any that were rude or too bold, I should be apt to be so passionate as to affront them, if I can, unless discretion should get betwixt my passion and their boldness. For though I am naturally bashful, yet in such a cause my spirits would be all on fire. Otherwise, I am so well-bred as to be civil to all persons, of all degrees or qualities. Also, in some cases, I am naturally a coward, and in other cases very valiant. As for example, if any of my nearest friends were in danger, I should never consider my life in striving to help them though I were sure to do them no good, and would willingly, nay cheerfully, resign my life for their sakes. Likewise, I should not spare my life if honor bids me die, but in a danger where my friends or my honor is not concerned or engaged, but only my life to be unprofitably lost, I am the veriest coward in nature, as upon the sea or any dangerous places, or of thieves or fire or the like. Nay, the shooting of a gun, although it be but a pot gun, will make me start and stop my bearing, much less have I courage to discharge one, or if a sword should be held against me, although but in jest, I am afraid. 
In terms of her ambitiousness, Cavendish's search for fame manifested itself most clearly in her prodigious writing career. Her autobiography says that she began writing as a young girl, and it was during her exile in Antwerp that her writing career began in earnest. Her first published work was a collection of poetry and other text entitled Poems and Fancies, published in March 1653. Two months later, in May, she also published a second text, Philosophical Fancies. Both of these works were published under her own name, which itself was unusual. Unlike other female authors of her day, Cavendish never used a male pen name in order to make her works acceptable to a larger audience. In addition to poetry and essays, Cavendish also composed a number of plays, printed in two volumes in 1662 and 1668. My favorite of these is a play called The Convent of Pleasure. This is about a young woman, Lady Happy, who inherits a fortune from her father and decides that she has had enough of men and resolves to use her newfound wealth to create a private community, the titular Convent of Pleasure, where she and other unmarried women may live free from the society of men. In declaring her intention, Lady Happy says, Men are the only troublers of women, for they only cross and oppose their sweet delights in peaceable life. They cause their pains, but not their pleasures. Wherefore, those women that are poor and have not means to buy delights and maintain pleasures are only fit for men, for having not means to please themselves, they must serve only to please others. But those women, where fortune, nature, and the gods are joined to make them happy, were mad to live with men, who make the female sex their slaves. But I will not be so enslaved, but will live retired from their company. Wherefore, in order thereto, I will take so many noble persons of my own sex, as my estate will plentifully maintain, such whose births are greater than their fortunes, and are resolved to live a single life, and vow virginity. With these I mean to live in cloistered with all the delights and pleasures that are allowable and lawful. My cloister shall not be a cloister of restraint, but a place for freedom, not to vex the senses, but to please them. Soon after Lady Happy's foundation of her community, a new princess arrives to join the group, and Lady Happy and the princess become very close. In fact, Lady Happy falls in love with the princess, who, naturally, because this is the 17th century and we can only hint at lesbianism, is eventually revealed not to be a princess, but a cross-dressing prince, who, of course, marries Lady Happy, but promises to keep the convent open for single and widowed women. The Convent of Pleasure actually touches on several recurring themes in Cavendish's own life, particularly her transgression of social boundaries between male and female spheres and her critique of the oppressiveness of patriarchal society. On a practical level, Cavendish used fashion as a way of proclaiming her entrance into the male public and intellectual sphere, and she was known to wear men's clothing, including riding breeches, and would sometimes issue the female curtsy for the male bow. At a London premiere of a play that her husband wrote, she wore a topless dress and painted her nipples scarlet. In fact, Cavendish was one of the few women to participate publicly in the discourse surrounding the new sciences that were emerging in the 17th century. The fact that she was able to do so at all was largely because of her husband's support. William was a patron of both the arts and sciences and an author in his own right, as I mentioned a second ago. Uh, while the couple lived in Paris, William even hosted a salon, a kind of uh, early modern book club or discussion group, uh, which was attended by Thomas Hobbes, René Descartes, and Pierre Gassendi. 
She also met the mathematician Marin Mersenne, who is most famous for discovering the phenomenon of Mersenne primes. While she was present at the meetings, Margaret claims she never entered directly into discussion with them, because these discussions were taking place in French and Latin, and she claimed to only speak English. But this does not mean that Cavendish didn't understand or read what these authors wrote, or have opinions on their findings. Quite the contrary. Cavendish was fascinated by the new sciences, and particularly the implications for the methodical investigation of the world advocated by Descartes, Francis Bacon, and others. In 1666, six years after the Cavendishes returned to England, she published her two most well-known works, which were packaged together in a single volume, Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy and The Description of a New World Called the Blazing World. The first of these works builds upon a previous 1664 publication of hers, Philosophical Letters, and puts forth her own views regarding the nature of matter, motion, and the material quality of the universe. For Cavendish, the traditional mind-body division of much of philosophy is incorrect. Everything is, for her, material, including the mind, and for her, all bodies and all matter is in constant motion and, to some degree, thinking. She also puts forward certain controversial theories on the way that matter interacts with other matter, and whether it's even possible to, by the process of experimentation, know absolute truths about the world around us. The second work, The Blazing World, is perhaps Cavendish's most famous work. It's a prose fictional work, uh, not quite a novel, too long for a short story, and not really much of a narrative. It's very innovative and difficult to categorize. Perhaps the best descriptor would be to call it a utopian science fiction, uh, much in the model of Sir Thomas More's Utopia written over a century earlier. The general bent of the story is this. An unnamed young lady becomes the object of desire of a traveling merchant. She does not return his affections and is his social superior, so he decides to, of course, kidnap the young woman and take her by ship back to his country. Unfortunately for him, a storm kicks up and blows the ship so far off course that it winds up in the Arctic Ocean. Since nobody was prepared to go that far north, everyone on the ship except for the young woman freezes to death. Finding herself alone and desperate at the North Pole, the young woman discovers, much to her amazement, that at the North Pole there is a portal to the North Pole of another world parallel to our own. The young woman's ship, full of dead bodies, passes through the portal, and she finds herself in another world. This is, by the way, the first paragraph of this story, and albeit it's about two pages long. Yeah. The world in which the young lady finds herself is full of animal-human hybrids. Ant-men, fish-men, bear-men, fly-men, worm-men, geese-men, spider-men, fox-men, ape-men, parrot-men, satyrs, giants, and the like. And these take her to their emperor as a present. Upon her presentation, the emperor, quote, conceived her to be some goddess, and offered to worship her, which she refused, telling him that although she came out of another world, yet was she but a mortal, at which the emperor, rejoicing, made her his wife, and gave her an absolute power to rule and govern all that world as she pleased." Uh, very fortunate indeed. The rest of the work is mostly an exploration of the blazing world, both its form and its structures, and also its philosophy and its science. The Empress asks endless questions about the world around her, and the various animal men expound on the mysteries of the world. What causes frost? What causes thunder and lightning? What is fire made out of? 
They show her a flea in a microscope, which almost causes her to faint. I want to note at this point that there are actually some really great sentences in this book, like, quote, The Empress having thus declared her mind to the ape men, and given them better instructions than perhaps they expected, not knowing that her majesty had such great and able judgment in natural philosophy, had several conferences with them concerning chemical preparations, which for brevity's sake, I'll forbear to rehearse. She even has some spirit consultations, during which the Empress causes to be summoned the spirit of none other than... Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle, who becomes the intimate friend of the Empress, of course, and her counselor and scribe. That's right, Margaret Cavendish wrote herself into her own story. After more scientific investigations, including a lengthy discussion of the Kabbalah, the Empress learns that her native country of ESFI, an acronym of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, is beset by enemies, and so she gathers an army of wormmen, fishmen, bearmen, and others to pass through the portal and aid her native land, which naturally she does with great success and glory. Despite her prolificness as an author and her attempts to engage with the scientific world of her day through her writing, Margaret Cavendish was rebuffed in her efforts. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the response to a visit she arranges at the Royal Society of London, the first by a woman. Founded in 1660, right after the Stuart Restoration, the Royal Society was the premier scientific organization of Britain, and membership in the society conferred a kind of legitimacy and recognition of one's status as a serious scholar. Cavendish arranged for a visit to the Royal Society in May of 1667, one year after publishing her Observations on Experimental Philosophy and the Blazing World. Cavendish's status as a duchess likely helped pave the way for such a visit, as, according to the diarist Samuel Pepys, there were some in the Royal Society who did not think it appropriate that a woman non-scientist visit. During the visit, she was given a demonstration of what basically amounted to a series of high school classroom science experiments. Uh, Robert Boyle, for whom Boyle's Law on the Relationship Between Pressure and Temperature is named, showed her various experiments using an air pump, uh, some magnets, and even dissolved some roast mutton in sulfuric acid. Then, like the Empress in the Blazing World, she looked through a microscope at the body of a louse. The reaction of the scholars was, let's say, restrained. According to Pepys, Cavendish did not offer much in the way of comment or question to the experiments. Apparently, neither side was much impressed with the other, because the following year, the society asked the Duchess to become a donor for their building fund. She declined. And this is the great contradiction of Cavendish. She seems to have wanted to be at once part of the male-dominated intellectual world of her day, while also being disdainful of it and its limitations. Her philosophical, scientific, and literary production was, as Lisa Saracen points out, a fusion of the rational and the fantastic. She frequently protested that scientific authors should write for less educated audiences, but at the same time, her own prose tended toward a verbosity that makes comprehension difficult. She was, like her works, complex. Sadly, hers was a life too short. She died in 1673 at the age of 50. For many years, Cavendish languished in increasing obscurity. Her ideas about the nature of motion and matter soon faded with the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica in 1687, and her other work became something of an oddity until the 20th century, when she was revived by feminist scholarship seeking out female voices in the age of the scientific revolution. Even the great Virginia Woolf had decidedly mixed feelings about her, once writing, quote, 
Nevertheless, though her philosophies are futile, and her plays intolerable, and her verses mainly dull, the vast bulk of the Duchess is leavened by a vein of authentic fire. One cannot help following the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page. There is something noble and quixotic and high-spirited, as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is so open, her intelligence so active, her sympathies with fairies and animals so true and tender. She has the freakishness of an elf, the irresponsibility of some non-human creature, its heartlessness and its charm. And although they, those terrible critics who had sneered and jeered at her ever since as a shy girl, she had not dared look at her tormentors in the face at court, continued to mock, few of her critics, after all, had the wit to trouble about the nature of the universe, or cared a straw for the sufferings of the hunted hare, or longed, as she did, to talk to someone of Shakespeare's fools. Now, at any rate, the laugh is not all on their side." End quote. So perhaps in the end, Margaret Cavendish did climb the steps to Fame's Tower, because she is remembered in this and after age. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>